Shall we pray? Our Father, as we now are before you, bowing our hearts and our heads, our lives before you, we ask that you would open your word to us. And for more than just an understanding, but for that response and faith and obedience, which pleases you more than sacrifices, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we are going through the Gospel of Luke, we have come today to Luke 20, beginning with verse 19, page 879, and invite you to turn there and follow. We'll read different sections of the text as we go through them today, but let's begin with just verses 19 and 20. Luke 20, verses 19 and 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. The remainder of the Gospel of Luke is dealing with Holy Week is referred to at the last week of Christ's earthly ministry. Luke 19, it told us about the triumphal entry on Sunday, Palm Sunday. And Christ uh, returned that night to Bethany, and Monday he returns to the temple in Jerusalem to cleanse it, to drive out the buyers and the sellers. He was angry at what he saw. He was angry at the commercialization of religion, the only area in the temple that the Gentiles had been allowed to enter and to know of God and to worship God had been taken over as a marketplace, and he was angry. He was angry, too, that the selling of animals was gouging the people, and he called it a den of robbers and drove everyone from the temple. Whether it's still Tuesday... Um, we believe Jesus is back in the temple, Luke 20, and the, the scribes show up and say, what is the authority that you have to do what you're doing? And Jesus doesn't answer them directly, but instead he tells them this parable about the wicked tenants that eventually kill the son of the owner of the vineyard, and they knew that parable was about them, and they are angry. So whether it's still Tuesday now or maybe Wednesday as we've come to our text, the Jewish leaders have it in their mind. They must deal with this Christ. And so they're going to come with deception and they're going to come with traps hoping to condemn him. Kevin Roos was a student at Brown University, one of the Ivy League schools, very liberal uh, reputation. He transferred to Liberty University in Virginia Immersing himself in the Christian culture of Liberty University. He even went on evangelistic trips with other students, all the while planning to write a book, which he did. He called The Unlikely Disciple, A Sinner's Semester at America's Holiest University. His plan was to pose as an evangelical Christian seeking to expose the embarrassing weaknesses of evangelical Christianity. That's what the religious leaders are trying to do here. Let's set a trap. So we have three questions here. Will they entrap Jesus in a political question? That's verses 20 through 26. 
Second question is, will they entrap Jesus in a theological debate? Verses 27 through 40. And then the tables are turned. Are they going to answer Jesus in a biblical riddle? 41 through 44. So the first question, are they going to entrap Jesus in a political question? Luke 21 through 26. Let's read those verses. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Their trap. Nothing would make the Jews more angry than having to pay taxes because it's a reminder that they are subjugated people under the Roman Empire. And Jesus is asking them this question about the annual tax, the tribute tax that every adult male had to pay every year for the privilege of living in their own country. And they hated that tax because they were having to pay to live on their own land But it was that annual reminder, you're a subjugated people. So they thought this would be a great area to set the trap because they thought that whatever answer Jesus gave, he's a loser. They're going to get him either way. Because if Jesus answered, do not pay your taxes, well, that's going to make the Romans angry. And they could just turn him over to Rome and he will be accused of treason. He'll be accused of starting a rebellion and... They'll get rid of him, and their problem is solved, which they actually try to do later this week. They bring a false charge against Christ on his trial that he advocated tax resistance 23-2. Or the other way, if, if Jesus had said, yes, pay your taxes, well, then the Jews would desert him. As a teacher, when Jesus was a child, there had been a tax revolt, huge tax revolt, and The Romans had come in and brutally suppressed it. But there were still some people around that were calling for the overthrow of Rome, the zealots. They wanted to drive Rome out of Palestine and reestablish self-government. And remember, even the common thought was that Messiah is going to come and overthrow Rome. So they thought their trap was, was pretty good. If Jesus said, do not pay, then the Romans will get him. If he said, do pay, then the Jews will hate him. They're going to turn away from him and maybe even destroy him. So either way, they've got the trap set. What's Jesus' response? Well, there's two parts to his response. One is, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And the denarius was a silver coin. It had the image of Tiberius Caesar stamped on it. And that's what was required to pay this annual tribute head tax. Jesus asked for one, and they had no trouble providing it. Somebody had it in their pocket, which was also, by the way, proof that they used the Roman coinage. And Jesus says, render. That's the word give back, which is due, repay your debts, your obligations. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay back to him what's his due. Jesus is teaching here to believers through all of history, you have more than one loyalty, 
And you've got to be thinking that through. We are to be loyal to civil authorities that God's instituted over us because they are ordained by God. The Bible doesn't teach that God approves of all civil government, but he has ordained all civil government and calls us to submit. Jesus is saying to the crowds, did um, Caesar build your roads? Does Caesar give you an administration of courts for justice? Does he protect your lives and so that you can prosper? Does he mint that silver coin that you found for me? Then you must give to Caesar the tribute that he deserves. The state has the right to collect taxes, and we must pay them. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That applies even if the government is not supportive of Christianity or even hostile to Christianity. Jesus is speaking of the Roman Empire, cruel, and in the future will even persecute the church. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans 13, and Nero was the emperor of Rome. There's no hint that we have the privilege of resisting even an unjust or oppressive law that we don't like. If a soldier was able to commandeer any civilian to carry his baggage one mile, um, we don't resist, Jesus said. In fact, the contrary, you carry it two miles. Riken says we have a duty to pay taxes to our government, no matter how wisely or unwisely we think some of our money will be spent. Paying the full amount of our federal income tax and other taxes is an act of obedience to Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle, so long as we have liberty to worship God in Christ according to our conscience and serve him in the way of his commandments, we may safely submit to many requirements of the state, which in our own private opinion, we do not thoroughly approve. Christ's response, first part, was render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The second part of his response, render to God the things that are God's. Jesus is saying by this, the state has limits. The state's authority is limited and cannot require what is contrary to God's law. And in one of two ways, the state cannot require what God forbids. And so the midwives of Israel were correct to refuse to obey Pharaoh to kill the children. The state cannot require what God forbids. Or Saul's soldiers refused to kill the priests of the Lord. Christians in China, where the Chinese government requires abortion, the Christians cannot obey the state. The state cannot require what is immoral or anything that directly conflicts with the will of God. The state cannot require what God forbids. The other part of that is the state cannot forbid what God requires. Germany in World War II required its citizens not to have anything to do with the Jews, not to trade with them, not to have friendships, not even acknowledge them. That's unjustified. Demands on Christian love and morality to a neighbor. The state cannot forbid what God requires. And those who disobeyed these laws were right to do so. Corey Ten Boom and her family were right to hide and protect the Jews. Martin Neumuller was jailed for preaching the truth. And James Boyce relates that another minister visited Neumuller in jail and argued that he would be set free if he'd only he'd agree to keep a silent about certain subjects. And so why are you in jail, he concluded. And Neumuller replied, Why aren't you in jail? China forbidding the Christians to worship is wrong. Muslim government 
forbidding someone to convert to Christ and to be baptized. Examples of governments in error. The state cannot forbid what God requires. The civil government cannot tell the church what to do and not to do in worship of God or the preaching of the gospel, Acts 5.29. The Bible clearly instructs that we are commanded to gather gather together in corporate worship and to sing praises to our God. The state cannot forbid what God requires. State cannot require what God forbids. The state cannot forbid what God requires. That's one boundary. And there's another boundary is that the state's authority is limited and cannot trespass into other institutions that God has ordained, the family and the church. Children are not under the state. Children are under parents. The state cannot trespass into the authority of the visible church. American Presbyterianism revised the Westminster Confession in Philadelphia in 1788 for this reason, to limit the authority of the state over the church. The state can still function as, a, they said, a nursing mother to care for the church, to protect the church from harm, not give any preference to any denomination of Christians over any other. But the church has the, quote, unquestioned liberty to discharge every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger, end of quote. The state cannot interfere with the government of the church, the discipline of the church, or the worship of the church. The state must permit the freedom of religion and the freedom of assembly. And those themes from the Westminster Confession of 1788 were echoed at the first United States Congress and written into the Bill of Rights. We're grateful for these, and we need to pray that they will continue. Where Caesar's image, it was stamped on a coin. Where is God's image? Well, it's stamped on you. It's stamped on you in two ways. It's stamped on you from creation. You're made in the image of God. And then you, believer, also have the image of God being renewed in you day by day, When you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and know the forgiveness of sins, then God, the Holy Spirit, is beginning a new work in you, and he's conforming you to the likeness, the image of God, with all righteousness, true holiness and righteousness. Where's the image of Caesar? On a coin. Where's the image of God? It's you have the image of God. And so if we bear his image, and we are to render to God what is his, then what do we give him? Ourselves. Yes, we show respect to secular authority, give it its due, but our ultimate allegiance is only to Christ and to the image that we bear of our God, the one who has redeemed us. Your citizenship is ultimately Christ's kingdom, not citizens of the United States or any other country. Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. Jesus Christ is our king. And no government or ruler on earth is above him. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, 1 Corinthians 6. So we give what belongs to him. Render to God the things that are his. What is that? It's you. It's your whole life. And you bow before him as your Lord and your, your Savior. That was their trap and that was Christ's response. This is the issue. Talk about being a relevant issue to all time in church history. How does the church relate to civil government? How do we live in a world that's opposed to Christ and in our culture more and more opposed to Christ and Christianity? How do you live with a civil government that 
attempts to require what the Bible says is, is sinful. How do, you, how do you respect your government? How do you respect your union? How do you respect your boss? And yet ultimately keep your loyalty only to the Lord, supremely to him. And it's going to be more and more difficult as our culture becomes more and more hostile to Christ. But we must all learn to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. And it takes a lot of wisdom to know where that boundary is. And it's not always easy. J.C. Ryle wrote, The grand difficulty in applying the principle arises from this, that men do not agree what are the things of Caesar and what are the things of God where the claims of Caesar end and where the claims of God begin. A boundary to the respective claims of each party must be laid down. The definition of this boundary has been in every age a fertile cause of strifes, divisions, and controversies. There are few subjects on which Christians have such need to pray for a sound mind and a clear judgment. Read church history and you will see every generation has had to wrestle with this question. It's been a very difficult question for the church in America with, during COVID. Where's the boundary between what the state can require and what they cannot, where they're overstepping into the authority of the church? How do you maneuver all of this? You pray for the elders. You pray for the church. And you keep clear. This is the, this is the, the North Star Your loyalty is ultimately only to God and his word. You don't ultimately obey the state, and you don't always obey the state. You're to love God ultimately, to always obey his word. Our ultimate allegiance belongs to God alone. Yes, we show respect and submission to the government's authority, but ultimately our primary allegiance belongs to God. As Peter would write, believers who are facing Nero, 1 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Well, are they going to trap Jesus in a political question? No, they're actually quite surprised and marvel at his answer. So they try again. Are they going to entrap Jesus in a theological debate about the resurrection? And so they have their trap again, and we have Christ's response. Their trap, look at verse 27. They, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. The Sadducees was the party that was very political. They're trying to bring Israel to accommodation to the whole Greek culture, language, culture, the arts. They're very friendly with Rome because Rome is preserving their power. They are very wealthy. This is the upper class The majority of the 71-member Sanhedrin Supreme Court are made up of Sadducees, and so they are the ones that have a lot to lose. In fact, even from their tradition, one of their members always has to be the high priest. As an aside, it's interesting, they disappear from history after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. We don't know much about them, except for this, that they deny the resurrection. They thought it death, the body dies, the soul dies, that's it. And so they pose their question, which they think is going to be a a good trap for Christ. Verse 28. They asked him a question saying, teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. You can assume that they're asking this question with an attitude of mocking. Look at all the questions if you believe in a resurrection. Look at all the silly questions. So obviously there's no resurrection. That's, that's, the, that's their attitude. That's how they're posing this trap for Christ. Well, they're also assuming that the Bible teaches about the life to come is going to be exactly like this one. They're assuming such a continuity that there's no difference. So if you marry in this life, you're going to marry in the next. They don't base that on scripture. It's a false assumption. They're setting their trap based upon the Levite marriage, Deuteronomy 25.5, which God instructed that a brother could marry his childless brother's widow, his sister-in-law. And so when his brother died, his widow would be cared for, and the children that came from that marriage would be the legal heirs of the first brother, their dead father. And so in that way, the inheritance could be preserved. Boaz marrying Ruth was an example of this, the Leverite marriage. And so they're taking this and creating a hypothetical situation. What if this happened six times and there were no children? In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? In the parallel account in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, Jesus says to them, my paraphrase, what a dumb question. Jesus doesn't say it that way. But he says, you're wrong to ask the question because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. What a dumb question. It's the wrong question. So there's their trap. But Jesus answers. Look how he answers verse 34. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marriage nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Jesus is responding. Believers experience the resurrection. Of course, there's going to be a resurrection day. Death is not the end. The soul continues. The souls of believers is in the presence of God, waiting for the resurrection day when our bodies will be raised and glorified and united to our souls and to be with God forever. And the proof of that is Jesus said, when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush and identified who he was, he said, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in other words, they're still living. Abraham is with God beyond the grave. And all believers who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ immediately are in the presence of Christ. Believers experience the resurrection. Jesus is saying to them, believers experience eternity. Verse 36, you become like angels. 
equal is maybe not the best translation. It just means what is similar to. The NIV is a good translation. They are like angels. You don't become angels. You're like angels. When a believer dies and their soul goes to be with Christ, you don't become an angel. You run across that on Hallmark cards and Hallmark movies. Nothing in the Bible about that. Angels are a different creature. The Bible tells us that we in Christ are going to rule over them someday in Christ. You don't become an angel. But you're going to be like angels in the sense that you won't die anymore. Angels won't die. And as God raises us from the dead, we're going to be immortal. And if there's no more death, there's no more need for marriage or procreation or raising of children to keep the human race alive. Believers experience the resurrection. Believers experience eternity. Believers experience the fullness of love with all in the presence of Christ. God gave the institution of marriage in this world to end aloneness, to be a picture of Christ's love for his church and good marriages in this life, provide relationships, companionships. It's close and intimate. It's a good gift from God. But the Bible does not teach that marriage is forever. The Bible teaches that marriage ends at death, Romans 7, 1. And so a widow or a widower can marry again in the Lord because at death, the marriage covenant to that previous spouse is over. There's no marriage in heaven. Otherwise, think of the believer in this life who's had a very difficult marriage. Heaven would be no hope if you're telling them that they're going to be married to that same person forever. Or the single person in this life who longed for marriage and it wasn't God's will for them. They're going to be alone in eternity. No, the Bible doesn't teach marriage in heaven. But Jesus is teaching the positive here. It's going to be far beyond what you can imagine from this life. Yes, there's a continuity from this life to the next. It speaks of heaven as being paradise and all the rest. But the difference between this life and the next is so far bigger and so far better and so far more glorious. And so the best marriage in this life now is only going to be a small taste of what every relationship in heaven is going to be with all intimacy and all joy and all love. And Jesus is saying the positive now of marriage in this life compared to the next. Marriage in this life is only meant to be a type and a picture of Christ's love for us, his bride, his church. Ephesians 5.32 But in eternity, we're going to be eternally celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage in this life is meant to be a small, temporary picture of the future relationship of Christ's love with his church that we're going to know forever. So why would we need the type anymore when we have the reality? Christ is the one to speak about authority in heaven, for he is God, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no one No other way to come to the Father except through him. Of course he can count. Describe what heaven is going to be like. And he tells us this is only for those who are worthy, in verse 35, those who put their trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and have the righteousness of Christ credited to them. Will they entrap Christ in a political question? No. Are they going to entrap him in a theological debate? No. 
Don't you love verse 40? They didn't dare ask him another question. <laughs> love it. Just love it. So the clergy are quite finished with their questions to entrap Jesus, but Jesus isn't done with them. He says, oh, before you go home, I have a question for you. You've been asking me questions trying to trap me. I have a question for you. And Jesus gives them this test, this question, not to destroy them, but actually to show them if they knew the answer to this question, it would be the way to eternal life. So what's Jesus' test or riddle, if you will? Verses 41 through 44, he said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? There's the riddle. It's true that Messiah was to be the son of David. No question to fulfill the covenant that God made with David, 2 Samuel 7. They marry, heard the angel announce to her that her baby would be given the throne of his father, David, Luke 1.32. The blind beggar even affirmed Jesus Christ is the son of David, Luke 18. No question there. Messiah is to be the son of David. So, how is it that David calls Messiah his Lord? And Jesus quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. Messiah to come is going to be God himself, the Lord to rule over the kingdom of God. This person is going to be so great, God himself, that even David calls Messiah Lord. So put them together. If Messiah is David's son, how can Messiah, how can David call him Lord? If the Messiah is David's son, how can David call him Lord? Because you see, in that culture, fathers did not call their sons lords. (laughs) The son was to always honor the father, but never the other way around. You always show respect to the elderly. They didn't know how to answer the question. But praise to God, he's opened our eyes. You see the answer, don't you? It's Jesus Christ as God that he's David's Lord. It's Jesus Christ as man that he's David's son. Revelation 22.16, I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David. And therefore, Jesus Christ is God, David's creator and Lord. And Jesus Christ as man is David's human descendant, his son. We keep coming back to that question they asked him on Monday morning of that week. On what authority are you doing and saying all these things? Who gives you this authority? What's the answer? Jesus Christ is God. That's where he gets his authority. Jesus Christ is David's Lord. Is he your Lord? To any under the hearing of the word today, you have not publicly professed faith in Christ, trust in Christ. Resist, stop resisting, put down your rebellion and kneel before him as your Lord and master 
and Savior.